Bobby Beersman yesterday. They were totally rocked. The guys are so so good. What's been your favorite part of the festival? Sunil Kilnani. Ina Moja. Paul Beatty. Alright. Tempest. Manu Joseph. Feel the beat on this. Lego.
mission of it the end. And the people see them wanna take it then. And the constitution see them have to take it and I kick it, kick it, and I whip it, rip it, sing. I spend the revolution of it the end. And the people see them wanna take it then. And the constitution see them have to take it and I kick it, kick it, then I whip it, rip it. Come on! Hi there, and welcome to this year's Z Jaipur Literature Festival's Roundup podcast. That was Reggae Revolution from last night's band Bombay Basement. I'm Eloise, and we are now on day three of the festival, a Saturday, so Diggy Palace is rammed with literary enthusiasts trying to get a peek at a stage. I'll be bringing you today's highlights and the highlights for the next five days. It's like a news bulletin but for stories. Fictional, non-fictional, historical, mythological, ZJLF has got it all. This podcast is powered by Audio Compass, an app with a ridiculous number of cool audio tours for neighbourhoods and monuments, so download it on your phones as soon as you can. We're giving away a free three-month subscription, so once you've got it on your phones, type JLF2017, that's JLF2017, and you're good to go. If you're at the festival in Jaipur, you can even check out the walks at the City Palace and Amir Fort, so we've got all of that to look forward to. Teamwork Arts produces the festival, which is celebrating its 10th birthday this year. India is also turning 70 this year, so a lot to get excited about. So today I realised that one of the most exciting things about this festival is just how many writers are studying totally untapped sources and unearthing some incredible stories. Yesterday we had the wonderful story of the world's most coveted diamond, the Koh-i-Noor, and this morning kicked off with the story of this man called Alexander Gardner. There's this one photo of him, and in it he is shown wearing this brilliant tartan turban. So yeah, full marks for style. Long before more reputable explorers had ventured north of Afghanistan, Gardner had apparently crisscrossed what are now Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, traversed the treeless tundra of the Pamirs, trodden the Silk Road through Chinese Xinjiang, and scaled the highest passes in the western Himalaya. In the process, he'd sustained those 15 wounds, been mauled by wolves, repeatedly robbed, and nearly sold into slavery. As one non-plussed admirer would put it, his explorations were positively handicapped by adventure. That was John Key, who's just published the book The Tartan Turban, a Scots-American at Aranjit Singh's court. Like I said, it's the story of Alexander Gardner, who was obviously this quite madcap adventurer who blurred the boundaries between fact and fiction. A lot of historical writers, and there are plenty here, I can assure you, spend their lives trying to wrest fact from fiction. But for some, it's more a case of swaying public perception. My name's Jules Evans. And uh, what was your favourite session yesterday? I went to something on the front lawn where a writer called Vinay Satopati um, spoke about a biography he'd written about an Indian politician called Narasimha Rao. 
And basically, he was talking about someone who Indians would be very familiar to Indians, but I hadn't heard of. Narasimha Rao was prime minister in the 1990s and basically managed to completely transform India and open up the Indian economy and pave the way for 20 years of, of, of fast economic growth. Is that like his legacy? Well, what's interesting about him is though he totally transformed India and, and brought huge improvements, he's been kind of written out of history by his own party, by Congress. The writer was saying that, in fact, when he died, his family asked for him to be cremated in Delhi and, and the government refused. So his body was actually left in the street overnight. And there were even kind of street dogs just pulling at the blanket over his body. So the, the writer was saying this was remarkable. You take someone like Deng Xiaoping in China, an equivalent figure, fated as a complete hero. But this man in India, written out of history, so that was that was very striking, and it, but he he was arguing, you know, very uh, persuasively, that he deserves credit as the man who really transformed and, and created modern India. And do you remember any of the policies that have like left their mark? I think the main thing was is it was a huge transition from a mainly state-controlled and straight state-owned uh, economy to one that was much more open, open to foreign investment. Uh, much more a uh, free market. But what was particularly interesting about him was how he managed to get this done. They were talking about him as an incredibly good strategist. So they said that if he was going to do something right wing, he would disguise it in the rhetoric of the left. And this, and this man, Narasimha Rao, had just, had just managed to get a lot done. But I think in the process, he'd kind of put a, a lot of noses out of joint. He'd offended a lot of people in his own party. I mean, is the aim of this biographer to sort of like make him a persona grata again? <laughs> totally. I think it's to, to give him the credit that he's due. That was Jules Evans talking about Vinay Sitapate's book, Narasimhanomics. And I am very curious to know what you and the audience will make of it. One thing that's for sure is that all of you guys and definitely all of the audiences here are alarmingly well informed, as proven by some of the questions after the talks. Let's whiz over to Battling the Gods, Atheism in the Ancient World with A.N.D. Haksad, Alex Watson and Tim Whitmarsh in conversation with Asha Sattar. Hi, I'm Karnishk and uh, my question is very direct and unfortunately very non-scholarly. How do you defend or how do you explain atheism to a religious fanatic like my mom? <laughs> Who wants to take that? I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> Leave your mom out of it. <laughs> uh, so, I have two questions. They're, they're both drawn from general observations. And the first question is that uh, I've met a lot of people who are atheists per se. They don't believe in someone who's looking, up, uh, looking after us from up there. But they still visit the temples because they get some sort of positive energy out of it. So it's, it's really psychological in nature. And secondly, as uh, Sir Huxley mentioned, that, uh, that the soul is consciousness. It's evolved from the matter. It, it's dissolved in the matter. But can we look at it the other way around, that we are all matter, the, whether living or non-living, non but we need some sort of energy to drive us, and we are nothing without that energy. So both in the psychological sense and in this sense of energy that we need, is that God? And can we refer to that as what drives us all? 
One of the great things about coming to Jaipur, of course, is how smart the questions are. So, <laughs> so uh, who's going to take that one? Can I take the first part? Please. Yeah. yeah. So, a lot of cognitive theorists uh, talk about a thing called a hyperactive agency detection device, which is something that human beings seem to have in their brains, which is an evolutionary adaptation um, that came in relatively early in the formation of the human subject. And what this means is that we have a sense in us that there is something guiding our lives, that there is something putting our lives together, that there is a pattern to our existence. And this is part of the way that our brain works. Now, I can see that people get an awful lot of comfort out of that. I mean, it, maybe that's the evolutionary adaptation, that we actually, it helps us deal with the terrible truth that we are mortal and that everything we do is doomed to turn to dust. Um, I don't think it's true, though. I think, I think that's the problem with it, that, I mean, you can believe it all you like. You can say it's a kind of convenient fiction, helps me get through the day. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But I... I believe the cognitive scientists who say that actually that's just in the brain. Yeah, so as you can see, they're not really afraid of just dropping into some casual existential philosophy on a Saturday afternoon. So after that talk, I thought we'd move on to something a little bit more pertinent and urgent. Brexit. One third of the holy trinity of 2016's political big names. No prizes for guessing what the other ones are. We've heard a lot about this subject before, but I just wanted to zoom in quickly on one of the direct impacts of Brexit on India. This glorious new global Britain, well, I think you've had a taste of that here in India. I seem to remember Theresa May came here recently. Do you remember that? I was told in Mumbai, and a friend of mine, a very smart business journalist, told me she simply didn't get it. She was preaching this vision of a great new partnership between global Britain and rising India, while her own home office was denying everybody's children a visa to come and study in the UK. So what kind of global Britain is this? I'd rather have a European Britain which gives your children student visas. As right, you so can hear, that went time. down pretty well with the audience. That was A.N. Wilson, Andrew Roberts, Linda Collies, Sujit Baila and Timothy Gartenash in conversation with Jonathan Shinen. So while we're on the subject of British-Indian relations, I wanted to rewind a few hundred years to when the East India Company was coming to power in India. The fact is that India was already a very well-established manufacturer and exporter of textiles. It was the world's leading exporter of textiles, to the point where there are records going back to Elizabethan England of English shopkeepers trying to pass off shoddy English-made goods as made in India because they could command a higher price since Indian goods had a higher reputation in Europe than, than they did. Of course, that didn't last for long. The company decided at one point that they could not, in fact, succeed merely by buying Indian textiles and selling them. They actually had to destroy this industry. And they did so pretty systematically. In Murshidabad, they destroyed most of the looms. Uh, remember that East Bengal was where some of the finest muslin was being made in the world muslin as light as woven air, it was said, which was, of course, Buff, being exported to Europe. Hmm? Buff tower. Absolutely. And you had, for example, the Dhaka gauzes, which the finest ones could be pulled through a ring. An entire yard of cloth could be pulled through a ring. It was just very, very exquisite work. So the British decided to destroy it, essentially, in order to eliminate the prospect of competition. And they did. They destroyed large numbers of mills as population figures about Murshidabad and Dhaka 
that show the depopulation of these cities as a result of uh, East India Company's destruction. Weavers were thrown out of work, looms were destroyed. In at least one account, and I say this with some diffidence because John is almost certainly going to tell me that this is contested, but in at least one account documented by a contemporary Dutch observer, the company also cut off the thumbs of some of the weavers so that they couldn't weave again. What we call a fake fact. A fake fact, a post I mean, fact. it's not likely that we will ever find out whether that is true, but one thing that we do know is that the British don't really own up to their previous actions. The surprise, I think, that people don't realise here is that the British have, for whatever reason, left this entire story out of their educational system. That's right. You are not taught the British Empire uh, in, in any British history uh, class, certainly up to, unless introduced specialist level at university. Both I and my children went through the British education system, learning wonderful stuff about uh, the wickedness of the German army and the Holocaust, but racism was something we were taught the Germans did. So I'm, whether or not apologies, token reparations like Shashi asks for, and so on, um, I think before that, it's very, very important to educate the British on what they did. No, Most no. British people simply are unaware of any of this stuff. <laughs> that got the crowd going. And yes, it does remain to be seen if that happens under Theresa May's government. That's all from us today at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival. We're off to see British folk singer Beth Orton and Shillong rock band Soulmate tonight over at Clark's Amir. Lots of great stuff coming in tomorrow. I'm looking forward to a story about Kasturba, Gandhi's wife, and Devdut Patanaik has got a whole new book on Sita, which is bound to be excellent. I'm Eloise, this is the Z Jaipur Literature Festival, and this podcast is powered by Audio Compass. I hope you got your free download code. I'll leave you with this tune from last night's act, Tombuktu by Inamoja.